This is Saving Grace, Living in Light of God's Love, a podcast ministry brought to you by Grace School of Theology, a seminary to the world committed to the truth of Scripture and life application through the lens of grace. Hello, I'm Carmen Pate, your host for today's podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Is grace theology something new? Well, though that is the claim of some critics, the foundation for grace theology was laid in general in A.D. 180. There were Christians in good standing with the church of A.D. 400 who held the doctrine that a person received salvation by faith alone. For those early Christians, God's future judgment consisted only of reward or temporary punishment for how they lived their lives before God. Heaven or hell was not in question. Faith alone saved. So why have competing ideas with unstable foundations, historically and contextually, gained a strong foothold in churches around the world, dismissing grace theology as something new and even eccentric? Well, our guest today will take us on a historical journey to separate fact from fiction. Dr. Ken Wilson holds a Master's of Divinity from Faith Lutheran Seminary, a Master's of Theology from Golden Gate Baptist Theological Seminary, and he received his Doctorate in Theology from the University of Oxford. Dr. Wilson is Professor of Systematic Theology and Church History right here at Grace School of Theology. In addition, Dr. Wilson is a medical doctor and hand surgeon in the state of Oregon. Welcome back to Saving Grace. Thank you, Carmen. Good to be back with you. Well, I've looked forward to this. It's always a learning process for me uh, as we go deep into some of these discussions. And I'm just thankful that you've done the research you have and have the knowledge to bring to the table. So, Dr. Wilson, as a professor of systematic theology, please explain to listeners who may not be familiar with those terms, what is it that you teach and why (laughs) is it that important? Yes, Carmen. Uh, Biblical theology studies only Scripture. Uh, Historical theology studies the way Scripture has been interpreted down through the centuries. So systematic theology combines these two. Uh, So Roman Catholicism, Greek Orthodoxy, Calvinism, Arminianism, these are all systematic theologies. So when persons ask, well, why don't we just study Scripture? Uh, Well, because unless you became a Christian on a desert island, and you're still on a desert island, uh, your theology has been influenced by other people mm-hmm. who, which have been influenced by historical theology. So their approach to scripture tends to be your approach to scripture. So systematic theology is an organizing of all our Christian teachings from scripture throughout history to try to bring it into a logical and coherent system that makes sense to the yes. average person. Ah, and that is so, so important. And now you say that a systematic theology is only as good as its foundation. So how do you describe a strong foundation then that can be trusted for accuracy? Yes, you've you've been reading. Uh, That is what I did write in my chapter two on a defense of three grace theology. And the foundation is how the theology originated. So, like the Mormons have a systematic theology. Mm -hmm. That comes from Joseph Smith in the 1800s, from his childhood as he was thinking about treasures in hidden caves and decoding rings and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Well, the Mormons don't believe that anymore, but that was the origination of what we now see in their theology. 
So the foundation is unstable, even though they've changed it and tweaked it a little bit. So when you and I open our Bibles, we unconsciously interpret Scripture from our foundation. Uh, we need to know where and how our foundation came about in order to be sure it's stable. Oh, I can understand why. Well, as we're going to discuss in our podcast today, there are some doctrinal foundations that are well known and in fact embraced by literally millions of believers around the world. But you tell us that those foundations are unstable and actually some are marred by pagan influence. So I think the question our listeners are probably asking, and certainly the one that I ask, is how can that be? Uh, I mean, are the historical backgrounds of these doctrines not researched by theological scholars who teach them as truth? <laughs> uh, yes. Uh, we all like to think that our particular view of the world in Scripture is correct. And so we tend to emphasize the evidence for our view and tend to minimize the evidence that goes against our view. Uh, it's unconscious. So that's why the study of our origins is so important. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, there's a book by Charles Warren. It was written in 2002 called uh, Original Sin Explained uh, Revelations from Human Genetics, uh, Genetic Science. So if you look at his table of contents, he has patristic period, 100 to 451 A.D., but his chapter, when he actually gets to it, starts discussing it only in A.D. 418 with Augustine. So what he ends up doing is leaving out over 300 years of early church writings that oh. disagree with his view. Mm. So you can mm. see the problem with that. That's, yeah. uh, that's not going to fly. Yeah. And furthermore, there are very intelligent and godly persons teaching each view. Mm -hmm. So we can't judge it that way. Yes. Uh, certainly, they must have studied these documents, the, the origin of their theologies. Uh, but as I exposed in a defense of free grace theology, even Dr. Grant, Wayne Grudem, uh, he is a good scholar from Cambridge, mm -hmm. he has his doctorate from Cambridge, mm -hmm. uh, did not know the historical background uh, of free grace theology or his own Calvinism. Yes, yes, interesting. Well, it just shows you we always need to be learning, don't we? <laughs> yes. Well, you know, one of the most influential Christian theologians and philosophers of the fourth century was, as you mentioned, uh, Augustine of Hippo. And, from the Roman province of Africa. He's no doubt one of the most influential figures in the development of Western Christianity. But how much of what we see and know as Christianity around the world has its root in Augustinian theology? A lot. Uh, yes, without dispute, um, Aurelius Augustinus is the most important yeah. theologian in all of Western Christianity. Uh, yet the Greek and Russian Orthodox churches do not recognize him as a church father. Uh, the Roman Catholics do. He's a doctor of the church for the Roman Catholics. But Protestant theology is also heavily influenced by Augustine. Why? Because of the two major figures in the Reformation, Martin Luther and John Calvin. Mm -hmm. So Martin Luther was an Augustinian monk, and John Calvin said, Augustine is so holy within me that if I wished to write a confession of my faith, I could do so with all fullness and satisfaction to myself out of his writings. And he mm -hmm. literally quotes him, over 300 times wow. in his institutes. Wow. So not only Roman Catholicism, but all of Protestant theology has been influenced by Augustine. Wow, that's just incredible to hear. Now, your doctoral thesis at the University of Oxford was based on Augustine's conversion from traditional free choice to non-free will. 
Uh, and in your research of Augustine, you discovered that he adhered to deterministic philosophies for our audience, meaning basically that he believed that all events and choices are preordained by God. Uh, who were his influences, or what, uh, what were his influences, I should say? Uh, yes, Carmen, there were three major influences on Augustine. First, before he became a Christian, he was a Manichaean for 10 years. Uh, this teaching started with Gnosticism, brought in some Judaism, and then later added some Christianity about 250 AD. So Gnostics taught that each person was predetermined by God to be either light or darkness, elect or non-elect, uh, saved or damned, mm -hmm. with no choice uh, on their part. They had no say in the matter. Mm -hmm. um, second was the Stoic philosophy of providence, and this was a meticulous micromanagement of every event in the universe. Augustine's very first book was De Providentia. In this book, he talks about a leaf falling from a tree and landing here instead of one inch away. Why? Because that's where God wanted it to land. He gives an example of two roosters fighting, and the very muscles in their neck as they're fighting is controlled by God. Mm -hmm. Every minute thing in the universe is controlled by God. Mm -hmm. So he persisted in this stoic philosophy of micromanaging providence until his death. Third, before he became a Christian, he mm -hmm. studied Neoplatonism. And the philosopher Plotinus had written of the impossibility of the estranged soul being reunited, reunited to the one, the all soul, which is really kind of God. Uh, and so he chose only some, a select few, and he abandoned the others. So Augustine was heavily influenced mm -hmm. by the three most highly deterministic philosophies and religions in the ancient world. My Wow. Well, he, you say that he moved away from these pagan ideas toward Christian theology and actually taught against Manichae, the Manichaeans. He even defended free choice yes. and election based on God's foreknowledge of, uh, for over 25 years. Well, how did the issue of infant baptism cause Augustine to rethink his free choice belief again and return to that no, uh, stoic non-free will? Yes, even after being a bishop for many years, Augustine admitted that no one knew why the church baptized infants. So when the fight began with the Pelagians in 411, infant baptism was a key arguing point. The Pelagians did not believe that we humans are born with a sin nature or a tendency to sin, uh, and that was against church teaching. So Augustine answered that the church must have a good reason for baptizing infants. So first, adults were baptized. Why? Mm -hmm. For forgiveness of sins. Mm -hmm. Well, infants don't have any sins of their own, yet they're baptized. So they must be baptized for someone else's sin. Well, it must be the guilt of Adam. Adam's sin is why infants are baptized. Next, the church taught that water baptism saved from hell. So, only baptized infants go to heaven, and the unbaptized infants are damned. Uh. Furthermore, infants have no choice whether or not they're baptized. They don't even have a brain functioning yet to think right. that way. So they have no free will. So he gives the example of a uh, one day a sick baby is rushed by the Christian parents to the baptismal font, but it dies at the door. Mm. So it's damned. And yet another child, uh, a prostitute, delivers a child on the street, abandons it, and a virgin of the church finds the child and rushes it to the baptismal font, it's baptized, and is saved. 
So it must be Stoic providence that determines which babies are baptized and go to heaven and wow. which babies are not <laughs> baptized and goes to hell. No free will is allowed. Oh, and so complicated. I, <laughs> I can't imagine having to think through all of this each and every, uh, with each and every person, uh, whether or not they're, they're going to hell or not. Uh, well, uh, why was this really a significant move on his part, considering his standing and influence in current church theology versus what has been taught for centuries prior to his influence? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Carmen, for 25 years, Augustine himself, as you yeah. noted, taught traditional free choice against his former fellow Manichaeans. Uh, for 300 years prior to that, every Christian whose writings we possess on this topic, 51 of them, uh, taught this free choice doctrine against deterministic Stoicism and deterministic Gnosticism. So the Gnostics, the Stoics, and the Manichaeans were the enemies of Christianity. Um, so these early church fathers rejected this idea of meticulous Stoic providence, saying the Christian God does not, does not unilaterally determine all things. Mm -hmm. The Judeo-Christian God uses foreknowledge. And in his foreknowledge of future human choices, he makes decisions and acts. So the Christian God is relational versus the pagan God that is a dictator. So this God, Christian God, elects persons based upon foreknowledge of their faith in Christ. So for over 300 years, this was the defense, the yes. argument against the pagans. That is, until Augustine until, rejected it uh -huh. and sided with the pagans. Uh, so most Christians of Augustine's time rejected Augustine's novel theology. Wow. And, and just to really point out how he sort of kind of went back and forth, he, he recognized that this would be violating centuries-old teaching that regarding uh, uh, the baptism. Uh, so he redefined free will. How, how so? Uh, that's right, Carmen. Uh, Augustine even admitted yeah that he had abandoned and violated that centuries-old Christian teaching of free choice. Uh, in one of his final books, he wrote, quote, I, in fact, strove on behalf of the free choice of the human will, but God's grace conquered. <laughs> the mm. problem was it was not the Christian God's grace. It was the Manichaean mm. God's radical grace that omitted human free will. <laughs> so how did he redefine the will? Well, he used the Stoic idea. Uh, knowing that Christianity had taught free will for centuries, right. he couldn't say, hey, there's no free will. Right. He right. just had to redefine it. And so he used the Stoic idea of a free will. And so that's the distinction between a free will that is only able to sin and a freed free will, one who's been set free, that can mm -hmm. do good. So the freed will, after God infuses belief and faith, then that person can believe in Christ. The free will can only sin. So it's a non-free free will. <laughs> think about that. Oh, I think we'll have to think about that. <laughs> oh, my, how confusing. Uh, for him, you would think. Oh, my goodness. Well, what are some of the other doctrines that emerged from Augustine's apparent return to his pagan roots? Um, when babies are baptized and receive the Holy Spirit, uh, you would expect them to continue in faith and good works as an adult. But uh, many did not. Augustine's mm -hmm. looking and saying, wait a minute, 
Some do, some don't. So Augustine had to answer that problem from his new theology. So if some babies who are baptized and have the Holy Spirit persevere in faith and good works, while other equally baptized infants with the Holy Spirit do not persevere in faith and good works, there has to be a reason. Voila! What happens? God gives a second gift of perseverance. That's how we explain it. So now, of course, today, Calvinists are smart enough to see a person with the Holy Spirit does not go to hell. So they drop the whole idea of the baptized infant receiving the Holy Spirit, but they keep the results of Augustine's new theology, which is a second gift of perseverance. Uh, so that's one. The other, uh, there are many examples, but like uh, limited atonement. Uh, Augustine never overtly says Christ only died for the elect, yet he implies it. Uh, his stoic God gets everything he wants without consideration of any other persons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it's a variant, uh, this is getting a little technical, but the philosophical McEar error uh, that defines omnipotence as receiving everything you want. That's a false definition. So they say God would not waste his time or his blood mm -hmm. or Christ's blood uh, trying to save persons he really didn't want saved. So if God doesn't want them saved, Christ doesn't need to die for them. It's a very logical system, but the foundation is flawed. No doubt. Wow. Well, what may surprise many of the listening audience is that these various doctrines we've discussed with pagan, not biblical roots, are broadly recognized as the five points of Calvinism, or the tulip of Calvinism, as some refer to it. How were John Calvin and Martin Luther deceived by these teachings, uh, even to the point of adopting them as their own? Yes, um, Augustine did originate the five points of Calvinism. Uh, all the roots are there, and uh, three out of the five are blatant. Uh, another one is very strong, and another one's implied. So. Luther and John Calvin both failed to see that Augustine redefined terms, just like we uh, discussed, mm -hmm. yes. that he took stock Christian words and he turned them around to mean something else. Mm -hmm. He used the same words the earlier church fathers used, but he changed the earlier doctrines behind them. Um, let's take original sin for an example. The early church taught original sin. They said it uh, results in physical death, mm -hmm. we get moral weakness, and we get a sin tendency, propensity inherited from Adam. Uh, so what Augustine did is he comes along and added guilt from Adam's sin that's damnable. So he just puts something to it. So he uses the same term original sin, but he means something completely different yes. because now you go to hell uh, if you're not baptized as a baby. So a baby who dies in the womb even has to go to hell. So he failed to make a very important distinction, and that is someone suffering the consequences of a person's action and someone being held personally guilty from another's actions. One of the ways I teach this to my students is say, well, you have a, uh, a daughter of a person who's in prison for murder. Well, she suffers consequences as a result of that. Mm -hmm. She could be in poverty. She can have lack of love of a father. could be many problems. Yes. But nobody holds her personally guilty for his murder. No. So there's a difference between the consequences of sin mm -hmm. and being held personally guilty for sin. Uh, so uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin just literally missed the redefinitions Augustine had done. Um, and I discussed that in the... Uh, in the book. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, thank you. Well, it does seem that Augustine took the liberty to mix and change Christ, uh, Christian doctrine as he saw fit to align it with his Stoic, Manichaean, Neoplatonic mindset. Uh, that, but it just seemed like to be a roller coaster with him. The example that comes to mind, though, is his dilemma with Christianity requiring personal faith for baptismal regeneration. How in the world did he resolve that one? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. He does, uh, somewhat. <laughs> so we already discussed infant baptism uh, not requiring personal choice since Stoic providence decides which babies are blessed and which are damned unilaterally. They can't think. They can't make a choice yet. But Augustine was a smart man. So he knew Scripture requires faith for salvation. So he invented a solution. So here's an infant, they're at the, end, the baptismal font, the bishop's ready to baptize them, and so the uh, bishop asked the parents, does he believe? And the parents answer, yes, he believes. Hmm. So Augustine invents a proxy faith. So someone else's faith can hmm. save me. Wow, <laughs> so, so now we have salvation by proxy faith. What a great idea. I think a lot of us hmm. have relatives, loved ones, that we would like to oh, be proxy faithful. Yes, uh, yes. Yeah, it doesn't quite work. Folks that we've prayed for for years just say, hey, look, I'll, I'll take care I'll of that for, for you. you. Exactly. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, well, did the fact that Augustine did not know Greek affect his interpretations of Scripture that may have gotten him in this quagmire, really? Uh, yes, um, Augustine admitted that he did not know Greek until later in his life uh, after inventing his new theology. So the Latin versions that were available to him at that time were not very good. They were poor mm -hmm. translations. Mm -hmm. It was only with Jerome that you really have a good Latin translation of the Greek. So meanwhile, Augustine depended upon these very bad translations to prove his theology. And he even admits that his system is built on verses such as Proverbs 8.35. It says, the will is prepared by the Lord. Well, this was interpreted as a Neoplatonic will, a willer, something that causes you to will. Mm -hmm. So God provides, he's the one that only can give a good will or willer. But the Hebrew and Greek Septuagint don't say that. It actually means God's favor, eudakia. Uh, it's that we get his favor. It has nothing to do with a moral-determining will. Yes. Uh, and yet, that was one of his major verses. And the same is true for uh, Romans 5.12, where the Latin says, sin passed to all men, mm -hmm. instead of the Greek that shows death passed to all men. So since sin passed, we're all guilty of Adam's sin. But all the prior church fathers viewed that death as physical, not spiritual. Mm -hmm. uh, mistranslation of Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, uh, to say that faith is the gift of God. Mm -hmm. uh, and that follows the Gnostic Basilides from centuries earlier. But the Greek text indicates the gift of God is us being saved by grace yes. through our own faith. So yes, Latin mistranslations were critical in Augustine uh, inventing his new theology. Wow, just a, a fascinating caricature and uh, certainly has... Uh, has has had his impact on down through the through the centuries. In closing, uh, Dr. Wilson, you have stated that Augustine's pagan syncretism doesn't make him a heretic, uh, nor are our brothers and sisters in Christ who are Augustinian uh, Calvinist. 
uh, heretics, but as we, because we do agree on the essentials, like such as the person of Jesus Christ as the God-man who, who died as our Savior for our sins. Uh, but what would you say to those brothers who are so steeped in five-point Calvinism or other doctrines of Augustine? What can we say to them to maybe help open their eyes? Yeah. You're right. Augustine was a Christian. He believed that yes. the man Jesus Christ was God himself. He believed he was our Savior from sin. He believed in the Trinity, virgin birth, uh, just like the, uh, the Calvinists do. Uh, so he wasn't a heretic. Uh, heresy, by definition, really has to do the most critical aspects of doctrine. But Protestants today, uh, we abuse the term. Anybody who doesn't agree with us is a heretic. Uh, and that's just, that shouldn't be. No. So I would appeal to my Calvinist brethren to research their Augustinian heritage and with an open mind. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't want to be in their awkward position of defending a theology founded single-handedly by a man with decades of indoctrination in three different intensely pagan deterministic systems. Uh, he departed from the centuries-old Christian teaching of free mm -hmm. choice because of salvific infant baptism. Uh, and he viewed this, of course, by his stoic micromanagement. Mm -hmm. So he admitted he departed from Christianity's centuries-old free choice against the pagans. Um, he tried to um, take all this and put it in a, in a systematic theology, and yet he combined Stoicism, Manichaeism, Neoplatonism, and Christianity. It is not a pure Christian uh, theology. Mm -hmm. And so when Calvinists look at the Scripture and they interpret these verses deterministically, they're not using Christian a Christian framework, they're using a Manichaean framework hmm. when they look at those scriptures. So I compare Calvinist theology to an impressively uh, beautiful pyramid, but it's upside down, uh, and it's all resting on the pebble of salvific infant baptism. Hmm. So um, I would invite them to consider uh, the pre-Augustinian and even Augustine's earlier idea of free choice, which is uh, really universal. Mm -hmm. And that's a free choice on our part to respond to Christ uh, offered not by the Stoic or Manichaean gods, but by Christianity's sovereign God of grace. Mm -hmm. For that love that can never be earned, never be lost. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Wilson. It's uh, been a fascinating discussion. And one that I would hope prompts our listeners to do your own study and research, uh, as you have done. Uh, we really, really thank you for joining us today. And thanks to you, our listeners, it's always our prayer that our topics will stir your interest to get into God's Word so you may grow in your knowledge and your love for Jesus Christ. Also, if you haven't done so, we encourage you to check out the many courses offered right here at Grace School of Theology, including Dr. Wilson's theology classes and his church history and historical theolo uh, theology classes. This will help expand your biblical knowledge and deepen your faith. You may have friends and family who need to hear about God's amazing grace. Please share our podcast. It's a perfect way to start those conversations. This podcast is for you. If you have topic ideas or questions that you would like to have answered on the podcast, we would encourage you to send those by email to savinggrace at, at gsot.edu or you can tweet us at savinggracecast. We're so glad you tuned in today. And remember, the love of Christ can never be earned and it can never be lost. 
You have been listening to Saving Grace, a podcast ministry of Grace School of Theology. For more information, visit gsot.edu slash savinggrace. Views expressed on this podcast may not always be the views of Grace School of Theology or its leadership.